The Restless Midlifer podcast. Get health, weight and life back on your terms. Hi, welcome to episode 102 of the podcast. Now, I have some food for thought for you today. It's quite short because I have a great interview with Laura Lloyd, who is an eating psychology coach. And we do a dive into something that really I've been, it's a bit long overdue really in terms of the podcast, because we talk about, you know, getting health back on track, getting things like the habits that lead us to eat healthier, get get the, the movement, the exercise right. But one of the key things that I often work with in, in t- with clients around is our eating behaviour, our reasons why we might eat particular ways. And that could be emotional eating, comfort eating, or as we explore with Laura, her background uh, and what led her into the field um, around things like binge eating and that kind of thing. Now, it's a really fascinating interview and Alan loads, got loads out of it. Laura's great. She has a great podcast herself called High Food, I'm Home. Give a plug for it. She does give a shout out to it towards the end of our interview as well. But I definitely recommend you check that out. It's really, really good. And got a lot of time for Laura because of her approach. It really resonates with my approach. And it's also grounded in research, which is always my thing as well. So hope you enjoy that podcast. uh, Sorry, the interview. And really just a short one today in terms of my food for thought. And it kind of ties in really with the topic that we're talking about with Laura. Um, And I've I've come to label this as after eight gate. And it's a bit of a confession, but it's also about, it relates to a lesson that I have learned as a result of this. Now, after eight, many of you will no doubt know them. They're them thin, wafer-thin chocolates that you get in a box. Um, you can get them all year round now, but there was a time when it was just for Christmas. And it was one of those things where it became a Christmas tradition over the years. And I remember as a kid, only being allowed one or two. And for some reason, believing there was always a secret after eight hidden somewhere in the box. Um, and I think it was just one that had slid down somewhere when somebody rummaging in the box. But I just believed there was a secret chocolate in there. Um, so it's always held a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a mystique for me, a bit of magic, the, the after eights for me. And as I grew up, they become a staple around Christmas uh, for me as we as, you know, grew up, got married, etc. Now, one of the things that happens as I grow up, and you don't necessarily have the parents going, you can just have two, you can just have three, or just one, or not now, is you see to yourself and you sort yourself out, and you take more than that. And this, this is the challenge, because for me, for, for us as a family, it's a tradition to get a big box of the after it, put them in a fridge, and keep them for Christmas. Now, inevitably, they never make it to Christmas. We always open them up early, and that's fine, but they get finished before Christmas. And there's nobody else to blame but me, because I don't just go in and dip in one. I go in and grab a handful, a mitful, and then I'm off with my cupboard, and I'll sit and I'll just gorge on them. And it's interesting because, you know, albeit I'm a coach and I support people in this, I'm still a work in progress. And it's moments like that, realizations around these things that kind of teach you you can sort of pick learning out of them. And for me, you know, if I have a handful of after eight every now and again, what's the harm? You know, in the big scheme of things, it isn't necessarily an issue. However, it does, it points to that kind of attitude or behaviour I have around sweet things in particular. I've developed this attitude that if the bus packet of biscuits open, then it's rude not to finish them. That kind of thing. And these are silly little kind of jokey ways of, rationalizing why I would eat far more biscuits or far more after it than I than would be sensible or wise. But there's also something else to this because with the after eights in particular, I don't know if you've had this experience, but the first one, 
when you have that first after it, oh, it's delicious. Oh, it, it, there's something about it. If you just place it on your tongue, and you, it melts, and it's just, it's wonderful. And the second one, oh, yeah, it's lovely. It's really nice. Third one, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the tenth, the fifteenth, the packet, they're not so nice. They become bland, it becomes whatever, it becomes just something you're shoving in your mouth. And isn't this the case with a lot of what we do when we're mindlessly eating, particularly around that the, the kind of things like sweets, crisps, the, the stuff that really we need to moderate down in terms of what we're eating, you know, unless it is one of those one-off situations. It's the fact that after the first couple of after eights, they become really nothing special. And yet, I'm continuing to eat them. And I'm continuing to eat them because I'm not present to them. I'm not present to the fact that my taste buds are just getting, hey, okay, I've done that. I'm happy with that. And I am mindless and therefore just shoveling them in. And I think this is really important to think about because how often is it that we overeat certain types of things, particularly the go-tos that you might have. It might be crisps, it might be nuts, it might be healthy food, you know, it might be whatever. But there is a point where that first bite, that first thing, it's really, really lovely and tasty. But as with everything in terms of our body and our psychology, we adapt, we kind of get used to it and it becomes not so special. So that's one side of the equation that I picked up, particularly with After Eight Gate at Christmas, because as always, somebody opens the fridge and goes, where's the After Eight's Dave or where's the After Eight's Dad? And they say that because I am the culprit. I am always the culprit. I, owe, I currently owe my daughter Rosie a big bar of dairy milk for the same reason. Well, actually, two bars of dairy milk and a bag of chocolate buttons, if I'm honest. <laughs> but the problem is, or the, the challenge is exactly that, is that I will just eat them mindlessly. So the key learning here really is to recognise that we do that and a lot of our eating is on is on autopilot. And part of the, the we talk a little bit about this in the, the interview with Laura, but part of it is to get off, off that mindless uh, uh, mindset, if you like, but to recognise also the reality that we don't, we can't stay completely and utterly mindful all of the time of what we eat because that's that's what a diet is often badged as you need to be very conscious of what you're putting in your mouth at all times and that's why most of the time it fails because we're, we've got our head elsewhere so it's about how do i get myself to be a little bit more mindful of key times but make it easier for me not to overeat or to more importantly mindlessly just eat what i intend to eat or mindlessly undereat. And this is where a couple of tips, and there's loads of ways we can do this, but a couple of tips are to add some friction in to the grabbing of the food in the first place. So for perhaps the box of after eights ready in the fridge is too easy, especially if the cellophane's off it, it's too easy. So how can I make some friction? Now if you think about this in your context, where it might be packet versus crisps, how can you make them harder to get so that in those moments, you have to perhaps more consciously think about the the getting hold of the food rather than it being a default. Because if you can more consciously uh, or access, you access your thinking about it more consciously, you're in a better position to then go, right, hang on a minute, what, do I, what am I after here? What do I really want? How much do I want? And the second thing is perhaps parcel them up. And that's meant to be a bit faffy and unrealistic, perhaps with the after eights, but parcel up the after eights. So this is an example. Parcel up the after eights into batches of threes and fours, even into little food bags or whatever. Um, and put the rest out of sight. If that's a bit too faffy, which probably is for most of us, then think about not denial, right? You're not having them, Dave, or you're not having them put your name in there. You're not having them, it's wrong. Think about, okay, you can have them, 
But we're going to add a little rule in here. You can take two now, you go off and have your cup of tea, and if you want another two, you go back. But you'll only get them at ones or twos at a time. And what we're doing is we're adding in both um, <coughs> delay and friction into the process to allow your conscious brain to think and register. Hang on a minute, do I really want that? And to focus on, right, I've had the two, I've enjoyed those two. Will the next two taste as good? or not, and kind of start to bring in the conscious aspect to it. Now, it's not foolproof, but it is just worth thinking about. And it was just something that was provoked uh, in terms of my thinking around that, particularly the after Kate experience at Christmas. Um, and it's something that I'm consciously doing now around biscuits in particular. And once I've paid me debt in the Dairy Milk uh, Department for Rosie's Bar of Chocolate, uh, it's certainly about how do I make it harder as well for me to do that. And perhaps those little changes in your in respect of your routines and environment could be really useful there as well. It's not going to be the clincher, the thing that's going to cure all. It could be just one sprout-sized thing that could help contribute to you moving in the right direction. So hopefully that's a useful thought for you. And as I say, we've got the great interview with Laura now, which builds on this whole topic, because I think invariably when we get into food, such an emotive, powerful topic, it's so powerful and ingrained in our lives, um, it can't, we can't help but find that it's, it's wrapped up and unraveled up in our sense of self-esteem, our confidence, our stress levels, our emotions, how much comfort we get from it, how much it helps to dampen down or to numb those emotions as well. So there's lots to it. Great interview. Let me know your thoughts at dave at restlessmiddlelifer.com and I'll catch you later. Now then, Laura, it's great to have you along for this podcast. Been looking forward to having uh, having you uh, in conversation, um, and the reason will become apparent as we go through. But do you want to just say hi to the audience? Tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, and what brought you to what you do. Oh, thanks, Dave, and thank you so much for having me on today. Um, I'm Laura Lloyd. I'm an eating psychology coach, and in particular, I work in the area of stopping overeating. And I work mostly with people who are working very hard and then overeating in the evening. Sometimes as soon as they get home from work, going straight to the larder. Um, sometimes overeating at dinner. Sometimes sitting with the TV on and endless snacking late into the night. I think I've done all of those things in my time. And what brought me to doing this was firstly overcoming binge eating in my late teens and early 20s that had gone on since I was about 12 or 13. So that was a real shift in my life. And in the last nine years, I've learned to use the tools that got me out of that in, um, in more settings than just binge eating in reality to deal with more everyday overeating um and weight loss actually for for many of us it's tied together right all of these habits kind of lock together and have an impact on our health our mental health and our physical health as well um but then as i progressed through life as a non-binge eater as I went into the workplace and I got a corporate job working on the news desk for a national newspaper and was working in really high stress environments, I didn't revert to binge eating, but I could see how my brain 
thought that overeating was a fantastic solution to every different work emotion under the sun. Mm. Whether that was procrastination, whether that was wanting to reward myself for, for all of the work that I'd done and the sacrifices that I was making, um, whether that was dealing with moments when work was hard and I wanted to push myself to do something, but I had self-doubt and imposter syndrome and whether that was trying to study for exams. All of my self-expectations, all of my striving self, the part of me that wanted to earn self-worth by achieving things was uniquely tied into my eating and that's the area that I work in most now because for all these hard-working people there's a bunch of emotion that we don't get the chance to process because it's not quote-unquote professional to be emotional in the workplace and then when we get home we're left with this fallout and it goes somewhere some of it's and it's not just overeating, is it, Dave? It's like for some of us, it's also over drinking and scrolling on our phones and binge watching box sets and all of the ways that we numb our emotions, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally relate to, to everything you said there. And I think there's so much that I want to explore. So I, I guess if we take it first step, when you were talking about the binge eating, because because there's a phrase that um, I, I can't remember where I heard it from, but that you know we've got eating disorders, you know that are, that are categorised as eating disorders, but there is also disordered eating, which is something that perhaps is far more common, you know, mm. that many of us can engage in. So when you talk about the binge eating, was that more towards the eating disorder end of the spectrum of of? Well, interestingly, oftentimes not. Sometimes yes. There were phases when I was bulimic. Nice. Um, as in I was making myself throw up after eating industrial quantities of food. And there were phases where I was doing what you might just recognize as being more everyday binge eating. For me, sometimes it was extreme. Like when I was at university, sometimes I would get up in the middle of the night and eat a whole bag of muesli, for example. Mm. Right. So it was just like I'm not stopping. I'm absolutely not stopping until I am completely and utterly stuffed and can do nothing but sleep. So that was me at my more extreme moments. And if I had gone to a doctor at the time, I still might not have qualified as having binge eating disorder unless that was happening several times a week probably and and because I grew up in a whole foodie household with hippie parents I wasn't really binging junk food I was binging substitute food so mm -hmm. I would binge eat um family-sized tins of chickpeas right. or um a whole loaf of bread wholemeal bread and butter but not going to the freezer and working my way through a sourly chocolate cake. Mm. But ultimately, because it wasn't showing on my body size, I'm not sure. I wasn't confident that it would be taken seriously, but it was driving me up 
the wall and I felt so ashamed and in such obsession and I it would really take over my mind I'd wake up in the morning with new promises to myself that I wasn't going to overeat and with plans of how I was going to lose weight and make up for the eating that I'd done the day before and these are all the hallmarks of a binge cycle or any addictive cycle right the guilt and the aftermath fueling the next round of giving in to yourself the next round of strictness followed by the next round of giving in the the kind of tightening circle of self-punishment and self-hate and depleted self-worth and depleted confidence. None of that really necessarily matters when you go, I don't want to diss the health service, but ultimately if it's not having an impact on your health, describing how it's having an impact on your mental health, what is it actually disrupting? Who is it actually hurting? Is difficult. Hmm. And yet there's this, there's this huge middle ground where people will come to me and they wouldn't be eligible for a clinical diagnosis. If they were, I would refer them. But they want their head back. And sometimes it is impacting their weight too. And sometimes their relationship. Sometimes it's impacting their confidence at work. Mm. Sometimes it's impacting so many areas, but it's just in the middle of everyday overeating that's bedded itself in to a habit that feels intractable, that feels like it's autopilot. And because it feels out of control, it causes us a huge amount of distress. I don't think that it's always eating on an industrial scale like I've described mm. sometimes a binge for us for an everyday overeater might be feeling like you can't have one oreo without finding yourself at the end of the sleeve mm. I mean it's different for all of us and hey we get to you get to decide if that's a binge for you if if calling it a binge is helpful to you or not there isn't some need to say oh my gosh yes I'm a binge eater and I have to identify as such if that's not a helpful label for you hmm. Hmm. so that, right there's a few things I will come back to and pick up on um but what I'm curious is what what was the turning point what was it because you talked about get your head back and, and you said it with such a there was a force there that, that I can totally relate to and it's when these things grab your head and they're constantly it's there all the time. Um, what was it that changed or, or that led to the turning point for you to get the help or to, to make changes? Just talk us through that. Oh, my gosh. I was so lucky, Dave. I was so lucky. I experienced what I look back on now. If I was a religious person, I would say it was a miracle. It was just an immense fluke. Um, but it was born of total desperation. And sometimes I think you just got to ride the bus all the way to the desperation destination before you're just ready you're so ready to change something you're so ready to do whatever it takes to change it and basically I was at university I was studying from for my finals I was putting immense pressure on myself to get a first because for me 
I'd always got these top grades and it was like I was pinning my confidence for the life after university on getting these grades. Um, I was studying English literature and I hadn't kept up with the reading at all. And reading wasn't actually something that was really easy for me to remain focused on for long enough, unless it really gripped me already. Like there's one thing between like reading a ripping novel, which carries you along with it and reading, I don't know, some piece of historical literature, which is really hard to chew on. And you've got to kind of really wade your way through it and annotate it and try and get something from it. So I was struggling to study really badly. And every lunchtime, I go home from the library early thinking like, oh, a change of scene will do me good. And I would just go to the shop on the way and get the biggest lunch imaginable and eat the whole thing and go to bed for the whole afternoon. And I was doing it day after day, just sleeping off this food coma every day. And then like somebody would come home in the evening one of my housemates would come home and I would just wake up. It would be dark outside. I would have wasted the day. I, it was just, I didn't know how to get out of it. And the, you know, the deadline of these exams was closing in. And then one day in my room, I found a Guardian weekend magazine. And you know how they used to have, I don't know if they still do. It's been a while since I got a paper copy, right? But um, adverts in, and the adverts would have a coupon on if you wanted the product you would fill out the coupon and send a check and get the product mm -hmm. and one thing was advertised and it was this thing called slim from within here we are i've got it here look this is what came and it was the idea that this from within that really caught my eye it was like the first time i'd ever heard anybody talk about like an inner world related to food and what was inside this was four audio cassettes. I'm showing my age. I'm 44, right? Audio cassettes and a little book on cognitive behavioral therapy and the, and the hypnotherapy, the combination of hypnotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy was like um, just eye opening for me. And I studied it over two years. I just like, I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't, I didn't go looking for any alternatives. I didn't know if anything else was out there. As far as I was concerned, as far <laughs> I can't speak. As far as I was concerned, this was the only thing on the planet and it was going to save my life and I just treated it as such. I just listened to these tapes until they unspooled. This copy here, I had to buy, buy off eBay. It's got stickers on it from Milton Keynes Library Council <laughs> Council Library because I wore mine out, like the, the tapes unspooled. That's how much I listened to it on my Sony Walkman. So that notebook and some hypnotherapy cassettes over two years, I completely unpicked my beliefs about myself, my relationship with food. And actually every time it said lose weight, I had the perspicacity to cross it out and put eat normally, eat three meals a day. I knew I didn't need, I knew I just... I just didn't care about the weight anymore. Mm. And that was my saving grace, really, because in doing that, I stopped restricting myself. I stopped promising myself that I would lose weight. I stopped all the unrealistic expectations and I just dedicated myself to getting normal first. I think that was 
key with hindsight. Yeah, and I'm not in the way. I'm not in the way here. I know we've had a conversation outside of this, but it's all it's so um I can so relate to it personally. Um, but also it it comes up regularly with clients as well. You know, the the combination of the pressure that they're already under, you mm-hmm. know, just a full-on life. Let's be right, you know, life is full on for in so many different ways. The pressure we add on ourselves with those standards in relation to work, being a parent, being a partner, being a this, that, and the other. And then those those pressures around, I must lose, I'm not good enough, I need to look like, I need to achieve it by. And one of the, I think this is really thing, because I'm going to ask you about, if we kind of pose a, a composite person, how you would approach and support them, if, if that would be, I think that would be really useful. But I think for me, what, what I found is that the actual, you know, people talk about set yourself a goal, have a deadline, have something to work towards. And I, I get it. I'm not anti that because it works for so many things. But for some people in some situations, particularly around health and weight, it's the actual opposite. Oh, you are actually... so right to notice that, Dave, because like what works for us in the workplace is very intellectual. Yeah. And we're talking about your body. And we're talking about a really intimate relationship you're having with your with yourself, with your beliefs about yourself, with your self-image, your self-concept, with your confidence, with your identity and your emotions. Mm. And trying to organize that with your brain, which we do with dieting so perfectly imperfectly every time organizing it with um counting things like all of these intellectual strategies right trying to control and i think there's a lot of this in the in the habit change world as well yeah lots of people will read a wonderful book like i don't know james clear's atomic habits or uh bj fogg you know and these are habit change greats and then they'll go all in on action based habit change and actually there is a there's a a little image in that tiny cognitive behavioral therapy book which has stayed with me forever um and it's like this little um it's like this little iceberg yeah yeah and i think that that's absolutely right it's like if i like over here all of those kind of attempts to use action to change your eating are in your conscious awareness but it ignores everything that's below your everyday awareness your thoughts and emotions that are driving the behaviors which is where i like to work where i like to play and unpick the people and I think sometimes when we think of unconscious, also because of hypnotherapy, right? There's a lot of talk about unconscious mind. I think that can feel very um, like a Freudian model, but really our unconscious mind is just our habit brain. Everything that we've relegated to our habit brain to autopilot us on, which is also our habits of emotional response. Whenever I feel this, I do this. Whenever I feel attacked in a certain way, I defend in this way and so on. If we can understand all of that part of us, 
then we are able to make changes in the tangible empirical world much more easily and I was able to lose weight actually after a couple of years of working like that and working on my binge eating I actually was able to lose weight and it felt very voluntary mm. yeah yeah, I love that. And just for the benefit of the listeners, that, that you had the picture of the iceberg. So obviously the point is there's a, there's a, a quarter yeah. above and then the rest of it's below. And really, you're right. And this this is the thing about the goal setting is that work or can work to an extent for a lot of those intellectual kind of goals. But, the, but when we're looking at this and if it's wrapped up in the emotions, the thoughts, the the pressure we put on ourselves that's the stuff under the surface isn't it it's the the rest of the iceberg and if we don't do that or, or look at that then that's where we're, we're only going to achieve some if not no success you know with the actions itself so I mean that's something that really does come across a lot because I'm a big believer in the habits you know the, the the cabbage and the sprout the cabbage is the goal perhaps and the sprouts are the chunks the small habit size changes that you make but inevitably you you bump up against when even when you're looking at small habit changes you bump up against thoughts feelings and more you know all of that stuff mm. and really it's the gateway into that isn't it to do that and you're right I love working in that area as well so it's it's fascinating and very rewarding as well so I guess if if I was to sort of give you I'm going to deliberately have a composite of things here in terms of it. if we have a client who's say you know mid to late 40s um they've they're a busy busy professional um being pulled out in all directions both professionally you know in, in terms of everybody wants a piece of them emotionally and um uh, cognitively but also family wise perhaps an elderly parent that they're having to care for children that kind of thing so there's a lot going on yeah they have within them um some you know they, they they're looking to lose weight but they've done it and tried it and been round the cycle several times you know doing the the practical tactical stuff of emptying the fridge getting the healthy stuff in following a plan whatever and finding themselves always slipping back and perhaps getting a little bit worse each time in terms or in terms of the the outcomes they perhaps have some emotional baggage around um bereavement in the past that's still there you know those that kind of thing um what would be your initial approach in terms of conversation how would you how would you just start working with them what would be initially the way forward for that for that so I'm a real believer that our self-talk drives everything. Mm. And what I mean by self-talk is that our thoughts create our emotions and our emotions drive our actions. This we know, right? But those thoughts that we have are sentences. They show up in language, in our mind. And the exact language that we use with ourselves is nuanced. It makes a big difference. So this person who's busy and has caring responsibilities, they have weight to lose, they have emotional baggage, and they've tried and failed to lose weight many times, will have drawn conclusions about themselves and their ability to lose weight and the possibility of losing weight based on all of those past failures. So the first thing I would say we've got to do is to 
effectively go through the closet and find all of those beliefs that are stemming from the failures that we've done or our perceived failures mm. in weight loss particularly and all of the ways that we think that we have not succeeded and so that we can gather some belief in a new process and one way of doing that that's quite simple is just to go through your diet history with the idea that there's a gem of wisdom that you've gained from everything and take something from every attempt and give yourself credit for your tenacity and your determination. People who try to lose weight are very strong people in reality. They think they're weak-willed. They, they think they are that there's something wrong with them, that there's something broken. And in reality, they're not. They've just been sold a method that didn't work, yeah. that, didn't, that wasn't sustainable in the first place. But they kept trying and they kept feeling inspired and feeling hopeful and trying again. So I'd work on that self-belief part and some of that is giving yourself credit for being somebody who's learning and who has learned from everything. And all that you haven't learned yet is how to make decisions around food. Because most of the industry is set up to take all the decision making off your hands and tell you what to do to make it simple enough for you to follow. And actually, I think that's super disempowering, especially for women, right? People saying they are the authority over what's right for your body. That doesn't make sense. We all like different food. My Nigerian client cooks a bunch of different food to my vegetarian 60-year-old. Right? And that, like, we don't need someone to tell us what the perfect food is. We need somebody to empower us to take the things that we already know and build on them. And take the lifestyle that we have and make something that works for them, for us. So this person who's busy with caring responsibilities needs things to be easy and flexible. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing also relates to self-talk, really. And it's how we push and pull ourselves in our heads. It's how we bully ourselves into trying to do things. It's all the shoulds and all the shouldn'ts and all the musts and the have-tos and the got-tos and the really need-tos, which this person has so many responsibilities already with their work and with their caring. Their brain is probably full of, I've really got to do this and I mustn't forget that. I've got to do that. How can that person then have a load of and I also have to take the stairs and I really should get to the gym and and I must remember to go and get the courgettes so that I don't eat real spaghetti tonight like that that kind of when weight loss becomes another chore another mm. thing on the to-do list we're just going to cave in over too much responsibility and then we eat just to be free of responsibility just like 
just like you would drink to like just go ah fuck it let's just have fun when we've got too much responsibility we need some place where we can drop it and often it's food so the trick there is to really reframe weight loss as a gift that you're giving yourself as something fun that you're going to do that you want to do and stop trying to bully yourself into doing stuff you don't want to do and eat food you don't want to eat and go and do exercise you don't want to do and to start with small things that you do want to do and you are willing to do and feel nice to do which might just be getting a decent night's sleep and drinking enough water to start off with and building up, as you said, Dave, building up small, small, small from there and then saying, well, what else am I willing to do for myself to up level from here this week? And then the third thing I would say that's going to be key for this person is to get out of self-judgment every time they do something quote unquote wrong with eating. Our attitude to mistakes has got to change. We've got to stop berating ourselves when we slip up. This person needs all the confidence, all the encouragement. They're supporting people above and below them. And who is encouraging them if they don't have that inner voice encouraging mm. themselves? And the only way we can do that is, again, to go back to this learning mentality. And instead of when we overeat, instead of judging ourselves for it and feeling shame about it and trying to sort it out in our head, to get a notebook out and get curious about what the hell happened. What were we thinking and feeling? And then take something, just one thing forward for the next time, for that next situation, so that we gradually start to forge habits which are a little bit a step ahead of ourselves, strategically looking at the obstacles that we place in our way or the regular situations, those moments when the bereavement comes up, for example, we know they're going to be tender moments. I've got a client and she lost her daughter last year and she now has a charity for supporting people through bowel cancer and she often appears on radio programs and things talking about it after those moments she's gonna feel especially churned up and she knows that now and she knows to plan for those and to plan to comfort herself and to plan to eat in a way that doesn't feel depriving in those moments as well to not expect herself to be on boiled chicken and broccoli duty on that evening hmm. does that well, make sense yeah absolutely and I love I love that and and I guess just in terms of for each individual it's going to be where where you start might is going to vary potentially but the principles are, are that that kind kindness and just let's take the pressure off and and work with where where we can what we can yeah where you start practically is completely different for everybody yeah. like for me it's always just mind mapping all of the places where the overeating is happening like mm. seeing overeating as being a collection of habits not just one big habit a yeah. bit like 
if you were helping somebody stop smoking, you wouldn't treat their cigarette that they have with a glass of wine the same as the cigarette that they have for 11 o'clock break because they each have a significant they a significance that's different and a different scenario attached to them you would see like overeating as being a collection of overeatings yeah and some of them will be emotional some will be, be situational some of them might just be tiredness related mm. or just some perhaps even just pure habit like the way that i always pop bits of carrot in my mouth when i'm cutting crudite for my kids like it's almost happened before i've realized it i don't think there's a lot going on emotionally there so much as just habit day after day and i just don't catch it in time so if you map all of that out then you can just see well you know either we're going to start with what's my most easy low-hanging fruit what's going to be the least friction what will I hardly notice making a change and I can get an easy win on or what's the biggest rock that I can put in the bucket here if there's one thing that I'm actually like no I've got to fix this before I fix anything else and then go for that one and dismantle that bad boy before we go for the rest but regardless of where you start behaviorally I think you need to do this kind of resetting first. And I think that was what helped me with binge eating the most. And why when I work with people, I work with them in a kind of maintenance first way. And we do a few months, four months usually, of maintenance first. And when we're really steady, then we go and do weight loss, which is just a little fine tuning from there but let's get normal first and let's lose some of the baggage that's my approach at least yeah and i totally relate to that. i think that's something that with experience over the last however long it's been working with clients that i think that's where it's come to but there is a lot of that normalizing you know just because even that feels i think for some there's a lot of baggage wrapped around that. You've got to deal with the guilt, the feelings of fear. You know, there's a lot around just normalizing something rather than I'm either on a diet or I'm off it, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's settling in, that just sort of grounding it, grounding them in that can be really useful and really powerful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I love that. Um, you know, you talked about the hypnotherapy side. Where, where, how does that play into it? And how do you use that? Talk me through that. So I studied hypnotherapy finally. I was always using hypnotherapy because it was so powerful for me. Mm. And the way it worked for me was just piping in positive thoughts. That's all. I didn't have any positive thoughts of my own. I just borrowed somebody else's. (laughs) And they told me it's already underway. You're already working on it. Even by listening to this, you're working on it. And I was like instantly more relaxed, instantly more... um, patient with my process instantly more reassured less panicked that I had to clamp down and do a sort of brutal regime for myself now and make it happen yesterday and um then during lockdown I decided to study cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy as a diploma and of course it was the combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and also mindfulness and act therapy, which were like the 
the the cornerstone of how I coach anyway, um, coming together with hypnosis. And the way that that school of hypnotherapy views hypnotherapy is in a non-trance model. So when they look, what's really interesting in psychology terms is that because hypnosis is a really one of the earliest psychological psychotherapeutic approaches, it's actually had a lot of testing and a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence around whether or not it works and in what context it works. And it's quite surprising that there's been such a body of evidence around it. And it doesn't work for everything. But there are certain areas where it's really, really proven to be effective. And they are habit change, fears and phobias, um, pain perception and pain control it's used a lot in dentistry now um and there's a there's also a big um emerging area around um gut directed hypnotherapy and the nhs is looking at using hypnosis and is actually implementing i think hypnosis for ibs and things like that so my area is all about the habit change and unaddicting from things um and the way that it's thought to work in a non-trance model is that rather than this idea that you go into some sort of separate mental state called a trance, what thoughts that's to be happening is that you're actually just kind of using psychological skills and strengths you, that you already have, the ability to single-pointedly focus at the exclusion of other things, the ability to visualize, the ability to use your imagination, the ability to relax, bringing all of these things into one moment where you can focus and pay attention and communicate in a mind-body way. Mm. And in a mind-body way means when you imagine it, your emotional self responds so in like stage hypnosis that looks like imagining that your arm is too heavy and you can't lift it for example and that's all that's happening there is that you're suspending disbelief and and acting as if and convincing yourself of it and sometimes I think I disillusion hypnosis too much but really I think this is good news because that's what we want to do we want to get into the mind space where we're no longer naysaying that things are possible for us where we're willing to set aside all of our past failures and our idea of what's limiting for us and just go well what if it was possible how would that feel and then we can rehearse how it would feel to do it so that when we're actually in the situation we are already have had experience have had practice and we can rehearse new thoughts because for me the downfall in cognitive behavioral therapy is you find a thought that's not serving you that's not helping you like 
say I come home every day and I go to the cupboard and I think I'll just have one. Now that thought, I'll just have one, starts a whole snowball effect of eating where I have a little bit of something sweet and then maybe I get out the chips and dips. And before you know it, I've had a whole kind of what amounts to a bunch of food that I didn't want to have, right? Could even be a binge. And and just because of that one, believing that one thought, but then say I decide, I don't want to think I'll just have one anymore. I want to think if I want one, I'll have one after dinner. Let's say I decide I want to think that. If I want a penguin bar, I'll have one after dinner for my dessert. But that little thought, I've just invented that. And the other thought, I'll just have one. I've been playing that one like a soundtrack for 40 years. That's deeply ingrained in my habit brain and I'm so used to following that and this new one is absolutely flimsy and useless to me unless I rehearse the absolute crap out of it and hypnosis is a brilliant way to rehearse new thoughts basically but you could also rehearse new thoughts in many ways you can write them on post-it notes write them down in your journal say them out loud when you're driving your car it doesn't it's hypnosis is not the magic wand it's just one tool among many, to practice thinking new things. Was that a really long-winded answer? I'm sorry. No, 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 I love that. I, I, it, it's actually, I think, really important to think about in terms of hypnosis because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, misconceptions around it. Um, so kind of just clarifying that is really useful. Well, I think it got, you know, the area where hypnosis got some really bad press was all of that false memory stuff that that kind of regressing and trying to go back to the past and you know that was really related to how even Sigmund Freud was really into hypnosis for a while before he began his free association thing that was a method that he adopted and it wasn't really shown at that time that the memories that you create when you go back in time like that are just inventions are just figments of your imagination and and that actually getting relaxed and imagining stuff is the perfect way to implant false memories into people which has been so catastrophic for so many people mm. and for families too so I think it is really important to use these tools ethically and sensibly. And I guess that's why I feel kind of passionate about common sense talking about them as well. Yeah. But coaching isn't really about the past anyway. It's not really my domain. Mm. That's much more of a psychotherapeutic domain. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it is really important to, to highlight that. And you mentioned you mentioned it a few times, the relaxation side. How important is that in the work you do? I think it's... I wish I spent more time on it, actually. And here's why. I realise now that I'm trying to unravel my striving tendencies that my nervous system has been in this kind of anxious 
must succeed, got to get stuff done kind of state for many years. And it feels like normal to me. Mm. And it's only in the last couple of years when I've been alert to the signs of burnout and I start to wake in the night and feel like I haven't done enough or that there's something not quite all right not enough about me and I start to work on all of those beliefs that I realize actually I have to bodily reset I have to switch my nervous system into its parasympathetic response again and again and again to give myself some space to be and not just try and solve and and I think mindfulness is the most accessible way of doing that and the most you know popular and yet it's also the way that we like we really give it the brush off like oh yeah 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 <laughs> oh yeah 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 I go for a walk in the woods yeah 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 but actually trying to find our way back to not trying so hard again and again and again is a really therapeutic thing to do and so getting relaxed is like the first part of hypnosis always it's like getting a little bit more relaxed than you would normally but that said people also use hypnosis in sports situations which are much more amped up it's not necessarily the only way of being in a focused hypnotic state but it's the more usual one the one that feels more like a little meditation the one that feels like sinking into your internal world and listening to yourself being in your inside space a little bit more often and a little bit less in the doing world and the trying to take action world and I think that's really hard for us especially um especially when we're working hard all the time with trying to show other people that we're being productive it's really hard to believe that going inside and doing less is also a unique and valuable kind of effort yeah the effort of awareness it's it's interesting the, the uh, I, i'm kind of riffing on it there with the relaxation because i think i wonder i'm kind of thinking as i'm thinking now because i know it's a work in progress for me we were talking about it before you know in terms of the constant doing and striving and, and what have you being very driven as a person totally many people are you know um and i wonder if at the heart of it some significant work on the ability to relax and actually what we understand as relaxation has changed because we're so driven and never really switched off you know my idea of relaxation is probably you know I'm, I'm here it's probably middle there but real relaxation is way down and just for the benefits of listeners i'm using my hands and uh, putting one hand really low like my my ground level if you like is is probably still pretty tense you know not relaxed yeah. Yeah, that art of learning how to relax, giving yourself permission to strikes me that really reflecting on a lot of sessions with clients, 
conversations with others and and reflecting on myself is that I think there's something in that that spending time there Mm. yeah and 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 I think we've come to associate switching off like just numbing ourselves out like just kind of putting the screensaver up going passive whether that's eating or watching tv or whatever as relaxing and I think that there is value like there is time when we just probably do need to go passive and just kind of almost like like when you press save on a computer you know and it's just like updating and assimilating but also I think we've mistaken that for rest and like play Mm. and doing nothing like we're not doing nothing very much. I'm not doing nothing very much. Sometimes I go for a walk in the woods and I have to have a big conversation with myself before I convince myself to take my earbuds out and stop listening to other people's yes. podcasts yeah. and actually look at the waterfall and the, and the listen to the birds. And it's like kind of bonkers to me that I should need to convince myself to do that, that that's more valuable. But I have to really sell myself on the woods and unstick myself and it's hard we are so it's not just food that we're over consuming is it it's information and if you are into your self-development sometimes even that can be like just give me more just give me more progress just give me more (laughs) let make me a better person please quickly and we we don't let ourselves just much I've got a friend she she teaches a kind of meditation called the do nothing meditation Mm. and you just you just hang out with a cup of tea and stare into space I think it's pretty cool you just let yourself be but oh my god the resistance the inner resistance that (laughs) the brain telling me oh that's a waste of time I don't have time for that it's interesting isn't it And, and it's certainly something that's very top of mind for me um also, you know, that, that thing with clients, I, I, you know, I've got I've got my son's dog here for the last couple of days um, and taking him f- out for a walk this morning. I had that very conversation with myself walking down across a bit of grass, some trees and just sort of saying, this is enough. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is enough right here. Just walk. You, don't, you know, you don't have to. And I think it's that practice. You've got to realize that it's that that there's a thing that, that perhaps it's worth exploring, even if it isn't. Perhaps you become more certain as you do. But you've got to realize maybe I am <laughs> always on the go and not allowing myself to just need to practice this. Once you do it, there's that as you say the conversations that you have. That's the practice, isn't it? And that's where I, I from my sort of not as a meditation teacher, but as somebody who's tried it, is that it's that the meditation practice is to help you in those other moments as much as it is in the practice. You know, yeah, when you catch totally yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you and it's bringing yourself back, isn't it? It's the muscle yeah. of bringing yourself back to yourself, but also just noticing that actually something like a dog walk might be a more accessible kind of meditation a, an accessible mm. way of letting your mind unspool and letting things come up and come to your attention than sitting cross-legged in a dignified posture <laughs> and uh, which can also turn into trying to do it right I think I do some of my best hip self-hypnosis and my best meditation and my best 
my deepest relaxation when I'm swimming because my body is in that sort of suspended state or driving mm. like part of my brain is occupied so that the other part can mm. listen to me and I think sometimes we need that especially if you're somebody who's physically like um you know wired to be on the go or not to be very comfortable sitting still all the time then sometimes just being in motion in mm. gentle motion could be the thing right so in my podcast I've done lots of meditations at the end of each episode I've done a meditation that you could do whilst you're folding your washing or you could do whilst you're out for a walk yeah. rather than a hypnosis that you have to kind of lie down and designate time for because I think that's where a lot of us are taking in that kind of um those new thoughts yeah are in those in-between times when we're doing our domestic chores and mm. things like that I think yeah that's, that's absolutely right um we'll give a shout out to your podcast because I do love it um very shortly but I think there's a point there that you, and you mentioned about your earbuds to take the earbuds out that was a realization I had that there was always something being input Mm. Um, and that would could be tasks doing busy food drink self-development fiction music and actually sometimes and more often than I would you know than I probably allow myself just to stop the input and allow yourself to be uncomfortable and push through that or not even push through just allow yourself to go through that to allow that space is where you know, other thoughts, things surface, creativity, ideas, the things that you're perhaps avoiding dealing with. Mm. And I think I want this is this is one of the things around the whole journey around eating. But I mean, you could apply it to work, you could apply it to alcohol, a lot of these things is that it's about that numbing or that just trying to to dampen down, or if not eliminate or push away the, the tension or the pain, or both. Mm. And actually, if we can just learn to that practice of relaxation, we can become a little bit more present to those. And actually, you, you, you talked about ACT, and just for the benefit of the listeners, ACT is acceptance commitment therapy. And I love that approach of, you know, you kind of, um, rather than trying to resist it or fight it or numb it, you kind of acknowledge it. And there's a lot more to it than that. Um, mm -hmm. But we're, it's like we use things like busyness, food, alcohol to avoid that side of our lives, that dimension of our lives. And work. Yeah. And work is tremendously numbing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think the phrase that comes to mind is um, from the, the eating psychology mother, Janine Roth. And she says, you don't need more. You need more presence. Mm -hmm. And I think when you train yourself, when you stop all of the inputs and the overconsumption for a moment, and you feel that moment of boredom and of like, oh, well, is this all there is then? Then you have to train your brain to say, well, what is there for me to love here? What is there for me to, and to wake up with all your senses to what's already here and to what's enough already. And of course, that's the antidote to striving, but it's also creating with your own thoughts the sensation in your body of satisfaction already, mm. which is something we need as eaters. 
Mm. We keep eating, trying to get to the point of satisfaction instead of eating until our body says good and then creating thoughts of, ah, oh, that was good. I'm done, ready. Oh, feel good now. Perfect. That just hit the spot. And if we can bring in all of that thinking and then open our senses to like, and by the way, what else is there for me to love here in this eating situation when I de-stick my focus yeah. from just food, mouth, food, mouth, then I start to notice that my kids are pretty funny hmm. or that the smell of cooking is still in the air or whatever people are saying that's entertaining or that I actually have quite a nice kitchen age 44 that I quite like to sit in or whatever the things are and I think that that's how we start to train ourselves to like it to like the life we already have yeah, yeah. But I'm not good at it I don't think we're good at it I think I think that's probably I mean I'm, I'm assuming for you but I know that's why I am into this work is that because it's the journey I've been on and I'm still on and don't get right it's a work in progress but the rewards the glimpses you get the rewards and the odd glimpse you get they think ah yes and I think that's that's what really fires me up for it so you know I, I love that but you're right it is we're a work in progress <laughs> yeah but you're and but those moments when you taste being alive mm. and you stop trying to get into the future and stop trying to get somewhere better they are such precious moments aren't mm. they they mm. aren't you're like ah I th this is this is it this moment this is a big good moment yeah and then you grab it and it's gone it goes when yeah you go, yeah you you're it. on to trying yeah. to sort something yeah. out <laughs> yeah. no but and it is it's interesting and I, I love that and I can pinpoint a certain couple of times in my life where that, that feeling of bliss in a moment came about totally randomly um and I always look back to those things and think yeah and, and it's not about striving to replicate it it's just about relaxing and going with the going with it wherever you're at but to come back to your previous point about feeling your feelings yeah even if they're uncomfortable mm. that's also maybe doesn't feel like bliss but does feel real mm. and there's something kind of refreshing about being honest with yourself and allowing that feeling to be there in your body and I think that's where acceptance and commitment like just that just very simply feeling your feeling as a raw physical sensation, whatever it might be, giving it a, a name, allowing it to be there without trying to find some fire escape from it. Hmm. Even if it's some of the stuff that we experience on a daily basis that is not very nice, especially in the workplace, right? All the jealousy and comparison, all the feelings of being unacknowledged, you know, all the feelings of unworthiness and that slight concern that somebody's going to find you out yeah. all the time. Rejection. Humiliation sometimes. Stuff that is like, we can't avoid loneliness, right? We can't avoid feeling these things, unbelonging. They're like tough human parts of the human experience. But if we can become 
a little bit neutral about how we experience them. Just like, oh, right, okay. This is me feeling like I wasn't part of the gang. This is, this is feeling rejected in your body. And then we can, we can just be with that. And that at least it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Love that. So do you want to give a shout out to your podcast? Because I mentioned it. I love it. I've listened to it. I particularly love the immersive feel to your podcast. So do you want to just give a, a bit of a shout out to that? Um, my podcast is called High Food, I'm Home. <laughs> I love the title as well. Each episode is about 23 minutes long. So it's quite consumable. And um, it really focuses on striving and stopping overeating after work. Each episode has a five minute hypnotic meditation at the end, which will help you build the skills of self-hypnosis. And I've been really careful in the podcast to share part of my journey as I go. I feel like it's really important sometimes to hear both the perspective of a coach mm. and to feel like to hear what a work in progress with eating psychology is and what a journey is ahead of us if we take an alternative approach to food and weight and what weight loss without dieting would actually be like in practice without somebody standing there saying, hey, all good over here, come follow my five-step process and you can get to this lovely, shiny reality and instead be like, okay, this is how we gently, gently guide our brains that think it's a brilliant idea to overeat at every opportunity into doing something different on a day-to-day -day basis in the details. And so in that podcast, you come with me into my home life, you come into my swimming pool changing rooms with me. Um, you come into bed with me whilst my husband is not speaking because he did not want to be recorded whilst I watched Netflix. That's my most recent one. So, right. yeah, come and join me there. Mm -hmm. High Food, I'm home on, on Apple and Spotify. Yeah, and I also, can I give a shout out to my email list? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So there's also, if you go onto my website, lauraloyd.co, there's also a stop after work overeating roadmap that you can do. It's like a 20 minute um, coaching video. And some of that, you know, I talked about mind mapping all of your overeatings earlier. It will take you through that process and then you'll be on my mailing list. And I email my people on my mailing list. It's only me in my business. So sometimes they reply and I actually reply back. I love that. I'm not, there's no bots involved. We are not bots. <laughs> um, and last week I got a message from somebody who's lost 20 kilos. That's like 40 pounds just by being on my email list and doing like picking up the tips and applying them. And so I just want to, rock out that email list and say you know come up come on over and be part of my journey as well the more I do this the more I think we need to um to walk together because mm. it is a difficult pathway and it's a countercultural pathway mm. in many ways to do weight loss in a non-diet way yeah. it's quite 
it's common sense and you're hearing more and more about habit change these days but still quite different to the way other people might expect us to be doing it and even the way we've trained our partners to expect us to yes. do it um so let's really be there for each other so brilliant mailing list yeah great thank you and just for listeners we will include those links uh, etc in show notes um so you can follow uh, that up but Laura, I think it's been brilliant. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation for me, never mind my listeners, but um, hopefully, uh, well, I'm, I, there's no hope about it. I think everybody will have found uh, lots to take away from that. It's been a great conversation and you've shared loads. So thank you very much for your time and uh, appreciate it. So um, is there any parting thoughts before we kind of wrap up? From your I just side? wanted to say thank you so much for having me and thank you for what you're doing over there for people in this moment in life as well Dave I you know when I read you saying you know in your midlife and thinking is this it I could recognize myself immediately and I feel like this is the start of a new chapter for us in this in this age of life and we get to be so wise about what choices we make from here on yeah. what we do want more of and what we don't want to clutter our lives with and um i really like the way that you're sifting through and helping people with that and i think it's really valuable so please keep doing what you're doing Thank you. And I will do. And you you likewise as well. So thanks. Thanks for your time, Laura. It's been brilliant. And listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, any feedback or thoughts, give me a shout at dave at restlessmidlifer.com. You can check out show notes as well for any links to Laura, uh, her newsletter and the podcast. Do recommend checking out the podcast, definitely. Um, and uh, we will catch you in next week's episode. But take care for now. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. You'll find all show notes, links and resources mentioned at midlifereshape.com forward slash podcast. And it would mean so much if you could spread the word to your fellow restless midlifers. Share the show and links. And if you aren't already, subscribe to the show in your podcast feed of choice. And one more thing. If you enjoy the show, it would be great if you could rate it by visiting midlifereshape.com forward slash review. It would mean so much, and I may even give you a shout-out in return. And a quick final thanks to production assistant Karen North of North BA and for the music, which is called Silver Star by the awesome Logan Nicholson of Music for Makers at musicformakers.com. Take care for now, and don't forget, you really can reshape your midlife health and rekindle that spirit of adventure.